The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we have illuminating conversations with wise people to help you along in your spiritual path. Uh, Before I forget, I want to remind you that this is the second version of Spirit Matters. The first, which I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for many years, you can find the archive of that one at spiritmatterstalk.com. Here, as we're building an archive, you can go back, if this is your first uh, experience with me, go back and listen to previous interviews at the mindbodyspirit.fm platform. Today's guest is an old friend of mine. Connie Zweig is a retired psychotherapist, a former book editor, a meditation practitioner and teacher for almost as long as I've been one. (laughs) She's the author of many books, including co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow. She's the author of a novel called A Moth to Flame about Rumi, the great Sufi poet. And the most recently, well, not most recently, but recently, the inner work of age shifting from role to soul. And her new book, which we'll talk about now, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, subtitle, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. I have had over many years Many, many wonderful conversations with Connie. Now you get to eavesdrop. (laughs) Connie, hi. Hi, Phil. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So let's begin uh, for the reader, uh, listeners who who don't know you. uh, Give us the origin story. Tell us about the early days of your own spiritual, what you call holy longing. And um, what got you on the spiritual path? And what brought you to the work on shadow that you've become well known for? Okay. So um, when I was in Berkeley, uh, 1967, 68, um, at 19 years old, we were striking the psychology department because they were killing rats. We wanted them to stop killing rats. And so we were closing down the building. And I noticed that a really cute guy walked out the door. And I decided to follow him. He had this braid all the way down his back to his tush. And he was very attractive to me. And we started talking as we walked down Telegraph Avenue. (laughs) And we talked all the way down the, the road to my apartment. And um, at a certain point, he said to me, well, I'd like to date you, but I can't do that unless you start TM. You can't get any more 1967. Right. So (laughs) I didn't start for any holy reason. 
I start because I, I started because I wanted to get to know this guy. And but what happened was um, after my initiation into transcendental meditation, I noticed that I was able to quiet my mind and a lot of the anger that I was carrying began to dissipate. And so I decided I wanted to meditate more. So I began meditating for longer periods and then I went off to a retreat. And um, at the first summer retreat I went to, Maharishi, who was the founder of TM, was there. And um, there was a lot of really interesting intellectual content. There was a lot of sense of community. And I noticed that um, he, you know, I now see this as a projection, but at that time, he looked to me like the ideal human. Mm. I didn't know that I had this image in my unconscious shadow about a yogi. But when I saw it outside of myself, it resonated. And I recognized it as my own ideal, self-realized person. And so I became um, more and more engaged, went off to teach a training course, as you did, um, began to teach people how to meditate. Um, and I was involved for about a decade. And then at a certain point, the, the TM movement, which had started kind of open and um, accepting and non-hierarchical, began to become more rigid. There began to be more requirements to get new practices. And there were also rumors that Maharishi was telling people to be celibate, but was having sex with his students. And those things began to kind of build a charge in me the hypocrisy and um, people were lying in order to get advanced techniques. So I left, um, 1979, I left the community and it was really a painful passage for me because I lost the purpose and meaning of my life. I lost my community, my friends wouldn't speak to me anymore. Um, actually, Phil was an exception to that. Um, I lost the relationship to the teacher, and I really didn't know what to do about the practice. For a while, I continued the practice on my own, and then eventually I gave it up. So um, in later years, when uh, I was married, and my husband and I were doing different kinds of practices, we met another teacher who held the Kundalini lineage in India, and we went to meet him in Rishikesh. And I had an experience of this very advanced yogi who was also sexist and contemptuous and very undeveloped psychologically and relationally. And that was kind of shocking to me. I mean, in retrospect, I can understand this was a sannyasi who had lived on the street, basically. I don't think he had formal education. And even though he was spiritually advanced, somehow I expected him to be emotionally advanced or relationally advanced or, you know, current with women's equality. But none of that was the case. So these experiences stayed with me over the years. And like you said, I um, developed this career of through depth psychology, through my training in depth psychology, exploring the shadow, the personal unconscious in relationships, um, in politics, in aging. And eventually I thought, well, I need to do this in the spiritual domain in the religious domain. I need to kind of help people understand what's going on when we're drawn to a charismatic teacher. What are we projecting or unconsciously attributing, giving away to that person and therefore um, disowning in ourselves? Um, at what point are we giving up our own critical thinking and our own agency 
um, our own capacity for doubt. And so I wanted to kind of look at these issues for people who have been either overtly abused by a clergy person or a teacher, whether it's a Roshi or a rabbi or a Swami or a guru um, or a sheikh. So if you've been overtly abused or just covertly like me, you know, more subtle, um, indirect experience of hypocrisy or shaming um, or coercion. And I wanted to see what deaf psychology could offer people as guidance in this situation. Good. So that brings us to the current book. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, you saying you're never going to write another book and and um, and thinking about our conversation today, I thought, Connie, it was like a, one of those cops and murder mysteries where they're pulled out of retirement for one more case. <laughs> <laughs> and you've written two books since you told me you aren't going to write anymore. Um, so this must have deep personal meaning to you. Uh, and before we get into the current book and shadow element of spiritual life, for people who are not familiar with the term, tell us what shadow means uh, and tell us what it doesn't mean, because I think there are some misconceptions about the use of it. That's right, there are. So Carl Jung, a hundred years ago in the beginning of the field of psychology, um, kind of coined this term shadow to refer to the personal unconscious, which is the part of us that's outside of the light in the shadow, it's beneath the boundaries of awareness. So we don't know what's in the shadow consciously. We develop a conscious personality. It has traits that are acceptable to adults in our world of childhood so that we can gain love and approval from those adults. And the traits or feelings or behaviors that are not acceptable, that are forbidden or unwelcome, get stuffed. In psychology, we call it, they get repressed into that part of us that carries all that material. You know, um, in Jung's time, we didn't know that the mind and body were functionally identical. But now we know that the shadow is all throughout the body. It's not in some corner of the mind somewhere. So it's just, there's shadow material distributed in the physical body and in the subtle body that we carry with us about, and, and one of the popular misconceptions is that it's all bad. Right. So it's negative in relation to the ego because it's not acceptable to the ego, but anything at all can be stuffed into the shadow. So if you're little and you're young rather, and you're artistic by temperament and you wanna draw or paint, and your dad says, that's a waste of time. You got to get serious and go to school and figure out how you're going to earn money. Then that aptitude or talent or even dream gets stuffed into the shadow. Or if you're naturally athletic and that's dismissed, it's going to get stuffed into the shadow. So anything at all can be banished. Anything at all can be um taboo and there are different family shadows and there are different community shadows. And so if you're part of a church community, there are certain things that are looked at with shame and criticism. And so you would repress those traits or feelings into the shadow, say sexuality or your connection to your bodily sensations. But in other communities, that's not unacceptable. In other communities, that's a natural part of life and of growing up. And so you might not repress those urges. But so, you might repress something else. You definitely would. <laughs> right. You might repress your anger or your sadness. My father, when I was little, my father used to feel that if I was sad, he was a failure. Mm -hmm. So I learned how not to show sorrow or grief or cry tears because he would feel like 
he wasn't enough. So it can be very individual. There are some patterns and cultures um, and ethnic groups and community, religious communities, there are patterns. Um, but we develop a persona in order to feel safe and loved and accepted and everything else gets stuffed away. Robert Bly, the great poet used to say, we stuff everything into the bag for the first half of our life. And in the second half, we try to get, we spend it trying to get everything out of the bag. <laughs> so bringing now shadow, uh, of course, applies to uh, all different aspects of our life. And in the, your first couple of books on the subject, you uh, addressed all those different psychological dimensions and so forth. Now we're talking about shadow and the spiritual path. Uh, it strikes me that there's um, two, at least uh, maybe more uh, elements uh, to, to be discussed here. One is each individual uh, seeker, devotee, student, uh, they have a shadow. The teacher has a shadow. And maybe there's a third element of a sort of the community, uh, community sa uh, shadow or traditional uh, shadow. Right. So uh, tell us what, uh, let's uh, get started. Tell us what we should be thinking about here. Well, typically, you know, if we go back to my story, you know, I was young and um, I was giving away certain elements to the teacher that I couldn't see in myself. So it was a positive projection. Some people call this a golden shadow. I haven't, I don't really use that term. So it was, I was giving away, you know, power, compassion, carrying the light, carrying the essence, you know, carrying the self-knowledge to this other person. And so as a result, I felt more childlike, more naive, um, more dependent on his wisdom, more um, in the student position, even into my, let's see, I was like 30 when I left. Um, and so that unconscious dynamic of projecting that those qualities onto him held me in that position for a long time. And at a certain point, the tension between my position, my role in the community and in that relationship was in conflict with my own growing doubt and need to individuate, need to separate from the community, need to think for myself, need to um, find my own path. And so that tension, which often happens for many people can lead to a separation it's happening, as, as you and I both know, with people leave, leaving traditional Christianity now because they're um, questioning the precepts that they've been given growing up, that, that maybe they've been educated with, and there's a tension inside them because they're wanting more to think for themselves or be able to question or be able to create their own lifestyle. And so a fundamentalism of any kind whether it's a mystical fundamentalism or a Jewish fundamentalism or a Christian fundamentalism can, can often lead to that moment of self-doubt, doubting the teacher, doubting the community and disorientation. It's an identity crisis, really. The flip side of that is what's going on in the teacher. Mm -hmm. So in the teacher who is carrying these idealized projections by hundreds or millions of people, let's say in India, Sai Baba, let's say millions of people, what is that like to carry all that projection of goodness, of perfection, of um, enlightenment or awakening? What is that like? It creates an internal pressure on the teacher. First of all, to be able to maintain the dynamic so that that adoration and devotion continues. So rather than hand back the projection, which as therapists we're trained to do, most of them want to maintain the projection 
in order to maintain their power, their entitlement, their grandiose self-image, right? And mm -hmm. some of them may be in advanced levels of consciousness, and some of them may not. They may simply have had a state experience of awakening that then dissolved. Or be exceptionally charismatic, and we assume that, yeah. So some of them may be awake, some of them may not be awake. So, and that, you know, throws into the whole conversation, what is awakening? Yeah, right? that's uh, right? coming up. That's, that's a another question, question right? <laughs> so, so the teacher, he, he or she, wants to hold on to that position, but the teacher also has shadow material. So what is in the teacher's shadow? Um, you know, Ken Wilber said an interesting thing in The Religions of Tomorrow. He said that shadow material is stored in the chakras, mm. in the subtle body. And you and I, in our lineage, might call that Lesha Vidya, the remains of ignorance. So if there are remains of ignorance, which is um, from the Vedas in India, even in awake states or levels of consciousness, those remains of ignorance may catch someone at a moment of vulnerability. Perhaps he's feeling isolated and doesn't have any peers to talk to, or perhaps she's feeling um, overwhelmed and fatigued. Whatever that moment is, that shadow material can act out. And what happens? The teacher goes into a rage. She's triggered. Or she criticizes and shames someone. Or he becomes physically abusive to keep that person, that student, in his place. Or he sexually assaults a female student. Um, so chapter five in the book is all about the many, many dozens of scandals that have come out recently in the last few decades about that precise event. When the teacher's shadow acts out, what is going on in those circumstances? What are the systemic conditions that are supporting the teacher, um, propping up the teacher with impunity so that there are no consequences to acting out the shadow? And what is going on in the obedient student, the, the disciple, the acolyte, that that becomes tolerated, that that either becomes denied or tolerated or even accepted and spiritually rationalized. Right. So that, you know, sex with the student is going to raise her kundalini or kicking the student is going to reduce his ego. And so there's all this spiritual rationalization for what we would look at as abusive behavior if it were in any other context. And if we, if it were in a secular context and we didn't think that person was enlightened, we would look at it as abuse. So well, the, you know, before we go on, uh, there are exceptions to that. Um, athletic coaches, drill sergeants, they are often extremely tough, extremely demanding. And we allow it in those contexts as well, because they're making a man out of the, you know, they're making them stronger. They're going to be better athletes, better soldiers and all that. And to some extent, that must be true. On the other hand, there's probably a whole lot of very wounded people because of that. Well, it might be true if you want to cultivate toxic masculinity. <laughs> right. But if it goes think, beyond the uh, the boundaries of the playing field. Yeah. I think in some ways, military is a cult. Yeah, yeah. That there is a kind of cult-like group think, taking orders, um, and lack of independent thinking, lack of capacity to question and doubt. Yeah, yeah. So there are very, you know, collective secular examples of this. Um, that are disturbing. In some ways, I think the Me Too movement really helped us become more aware of that happening, especially of sexual assault in the military, mm -hmm. in the workplace, um, in the educational system, 
Um, but it focused on secular environments. And so what I wanted to do was extend that into the religious world. You know, we all lived through the Catholic priest sexual abuse scandals in the 80s, child sexual abuse, which continues. I mean, the stories continue now to this day. They're still paying off diocese. And, mm -hmm. um, but we don't really understand why that happened. And we don't really know about systemic changes that have been made in the Catholic Church to prevent that. So I wanted to look at those questions in spiritual communities and see if there were any models for how we might change the system. And I found a few. So I tell the story of a few uh, communities, Kripalu Yoga yeah, Community. Yeah. We had, by the way, for the listeners, uh, I also had to look into this matter of, of guru abuses uh, in American Veda. And I found Prapalu was a, a, a very a, a good role model for how things were handled. And if uh, one of my early interviews on this podcast, if you want to hear it, is with uh, this current CEO of Kripalu and uh, Stephen Cope, the psychologist who was uh, present at the time of their scandal. And uh, so I commend you to listen to that as well, but go on, Khan. So there are other examples. Um, the LA Zen Center hmm. also had a sex scandal with the Roshi and everything exploded. And a female Roshi came in and she redesigned everything. She took down the hierarchies. She taught them how to look at their shadows she changed the meditation from facing the wall to facing each other. She redesigned the masculine feminine dynamics. So there are some hopeful examples. However, um, they're few and far between compared to this epidemic that we're seeing now <clears throat> in which individual teachers are really isolating their communities. They're taking them further and further out of mainstream culture physically isolating them and um, really doing terrible power, sex and money abuses. So, um, so that's some of what I look at in terms of the dynamics. I also, um, there's another idea from Ken Wilber that has been really meaningful to me, which is that we don't develop globally, unilaterally. Mm -hmm. We develop along distinct lines of development. And so the teacher in India, the Kundalini master I went to see, was highly spiritually developed, but he didn't have emotional development or moral development. Um, and so I urge people to look at their teachers and see can you see moral development? Ethical or ethical rules and agreements being followed? Can you see emotional development? And is there something you can do to bring that to your community, to introduce that? If you're not ready to leave, if you're not in that dilemma of should I stay, should I leave, but you're settled there for some reason, it's working for you. How can you introduce these questions about hierarchies, projection, um, group dynamics, group coercion, group think, um, and emotional development and moral development, which are typically really lacking when spirituality is being focused on. And uh, when the teacher comes from a tradition where those things are you basically ignore it, especially if it was a monastic uh, tradition and a, a different culture. Um, let's go back for a moment um, uh, to fill in uh, what uh, questions the re the listeners might have uh, with some of the things we we mentioned, um, and they're related. The two two of them are related. Um, in the subtitle of 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 your new book is um, the dance of darkness and light in our search for awakening. So the first question is, 
what is awakening? What do you mean by it? And how, how has your understanding of that changed over the course of your own life and work? And the second is in that context to uh, tell us more about lines of development, because like you, um, uh, uh, Wilbur's uh, delineation of that uh, had a lot of meaning for me as well, explained a lot. So those two questions. No small thing here. Yeah, right. What it, What is awakening? So um, awakening is a verb. Consciousness evolves naturally in human beings. And there is, I remember um, I was in my 20s. I found a book called Coming Home by mm. Lex Hickson, mm -hmm. in which he described the transcendental experience as the root experience of every major perennial religious tradition. Right. And his idea was that the dogma came later, but they were all rooted in the founder having that experience. So what is a transcendental experience or a mystical or a non-dual experience? It's an experience of awareness without an object, pure consciousness rather than contents of consciousness. So if you, you have that experience in meditation, um, you might think, oh, I'm awake. But that, that is what we call a state experience. It's an experience of a state of consciousness that comes and goes when you're sitting with your eyes closed or in some cases when you're with, with your eyes open. What happens as that deepen, expands or deepens into daily life? So for example, one person I know um, really doesn't have any thoughts. The thoughts are there when he needs them, but most of the time his mind is quiet and it's not in a duality, a duality of subject object, of near far, of right wrong. His mind has moved beyond those dualities or his consciousness has moved beyond those dualities and um, that doesn't, it's, it's pretty unchanging for him. And so it's not really a temporary state that he has in meditation. It's a level or a stage of awareness that um, his consciousness has attained. So awakening can be- oh, Connie, before you, before you go on, just to clarify, the person you're referring to, he's walking, Yes. He opens doors. Yes, he's he very knows he knows the door is uh needs to be pulled. He's highly pushed. functional. Yeah. So the senses are engaged. Mm -hmm. The mind may say, um, oh, there's a red light coming mm -hmm. or whatever. You so it's I just want to clarify for when, yeah, yeah. when people hear no thought. Yeah. Well, the thought is there when it's needed, but there's no noise. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, most people live with a constant inner dialogue of the narrative self. That's cooked. Ah. So I think part of what's happening now in, you know, with Buddha at the gas pump and all these people coming out to say they're awake is that it's like a Tower of Babel. So some of them are referring to one quick state experience in meditation. Some of them are referring to the experience of a witness in which they have an internal observer of their own inner world. Some are um, having more flashy experiences. A friend of mine sees light everywhere. And so people will call that awake. Some are having experiences of um, a unity perception with a single object. You know, mm. so I am that tree. I can see that that tree is me and I am that tree. And some of them are having what I was describing before, which is more of an advanced level of awareness. 
So any of those can be called awakening. So nobody knows what they're talking about because everything has kind of become, and you know, non-duality is the pet term now, but there are many levels of non-dual awareness. And many misconceptions about what the word means. Yeah. Well, it means not to, but it can mean not to in the context of all those stages that I just described. So um, so it's very tricky to try to respond to that, Phil. Good, because it's, it's tricky for people listening to get their hands all their yeah. hands around the term and, and the related and think, terms like uh, realization and enlightenment. Right. And when you and I, you know, were starting out in our 20s, I think we got this picture that it was like um, an end point. Yes. You know, we get there and it's done and then we do something else. Yeah. It's not like that. Consciousness is ever evolving. It's ever changing. It's um, there's an aspect of it that's not changing, but there's a an aspect of it that in the human nervous system continues to evolve. And so, um, you know, what I was trying to do in this book is direct address this, these questions. If somebody has attained a high level of awareness, how could they be cruel? Mm-hmm. How could they be harmful? How could they lie or cheat? How could they sexually assault someone? That's really was what I was trying to understand. And and your many many people have been trying to understand that for decades, ever since these um, incidents came to the surface back in the seventies. And um, one of the reasons is the assumptions we had, and you alluded to the assumptions we had that there's these higher states of consciousness, these realized states, awakened states, meant that all other areas of life were fully developed simultaneously. And we were led to believe that. Um, and then it, so it, it sets up a sort of cognitive dissonance. If, if so-and-so is enlightened, and they're doing these things, either he's not enlightened or our understanding of, of awakening needs to be questioned. That's right. So which or of both. those or, or both? both. <laughs> right. <laughs> or neither. Or neither. I mean, yeah, right. right. It's very individual. And, you know, you mentioned the 1970s. These stories that I tell are current. Mm -hmm. The next generation of young people who've become teachers are still acting out their shadows. So, I mean, Shambhala in Boulder, three generations of terrible abuse, starting mm. with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the next one and the next one. There's three a third? Oh, yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah, his son. Mm. First there was Ozil Tenzin, and then now there's his son, who had to be chased out of the country. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, this is not only um, old information. There's new news now about teachers who are uh, currently wrecking havoc. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to understand why this is happening, why people don't leave, how people can move from a survivor or a bystander to a whistleblower in mm. this situation, right? How can they find the, their voice and their agency to try to do something about this rather than deny and rationalize the, the bad behavior? That's deeply traumatizing people. And let me ask you this, Connie, because um, when I talk to people about this, one of the reactions is I'm done with teachers. I'm just, I'm, I'm on my own. We're all always on our own. Uh, the spiritual path is very individual. We have to make our own choices, but we all need people who know stuff we don't know. So how do people deal with the uh, genuine uh, uh, positive value of having teachers 
and being parts uh being part of affiliated with groups and institutions and so forth and yet retain uh, agency how do, how do you help people negotiate that well my so the second half of the book is how to recover from this trauma and it's also useful for how to stay in a community as an individual just what you're describing how do we stay in relation to a teacher in a conscious relationship. So I call that shadow awareness. Mm. Cultivating the awareness of what I'm giving up or giving away or repressing in order to belong. What am I identifying with and what am I disowning? And the same thing, how can the community do that almost like a ritual? What is the community persona here? What have we developed in order to adapt to this teacher and to look good and to pull new people in? And what have we sacrificed into the shadow in order to do that? Mm -hmm. How much individuality have mm -hmm. we lost? How much individual voice have we silenced in order to do that, right? Because all these groups wanna pull in new members. And, you know, for teachers who are open to psychological work, who are not solely identified with their spiritual state, but recognize that there are other kinds of inner work, they can do self-reflection and peer counseling as well. Because I think many teachers act out because they're isolated. Uh -huh. And so they need something like Association for Spiritual Integrity that you've developed. They need people they can share their fears with or their risks. So what am I at risk for as a teacher? You know, um, there was a teacher um, in Tibetan Buddhism named Kalu Rinpoche who um, became renowned, I, I was in his presence once, he was like totally empty. It was really an amazing experience. And when he died, there was a, a young boy named Kalu Rinpoche, who they believed was his reincarnation. And that second Kalu Rinpoche um, came to the West recently. I think he's about 30 now. And he said, all of the boys in the monasteries are being molested. Oh, my. And I'm going to stop this now. And I'm going to make apologies to women in Tibet, in the Tibetan Buddhist world for the abuses. And he's trying to take a stand on what's happening. How do people develop that kind of courage mm -hmm. and resilience? Not to say... It's all bad and I'm leaving. Right. But they, there's great beauty here. And how do we correct the wrongs? And so how do we hold those opposites? Right? Because it's mm -hmm. so, most religion teaches good versus evil and you have to choose the good and the evil just goes away, right? This is about holding the shadow and holding the light and not repressing one and not repressing the other one. In spiritual communities, um, when people, I mean, it, it, the typical thing is you might have some doubt about a, a teaching, a precept, um, or a form of behavior, or a policy, you know, an institutional or administrative uh, uh, defect that you spot, some dysfunction. There's tremendous pressure to just shut up because you're in the community in part at least because of the sense of family and the sense of belonging and you don't want to be ostracized and that's often what happens with people you know you express doubt and you're immediately considered spiritually deficient or for even right. entertaining it so how do people who want to be and have val see value in a community uh, 
maintain some independent thinking and yet have the courage to uh, speak out instead of just holding it all in and, you know, exploding one day. Well, I think one of the um, <clears throat> underlying patterns in this dynamic is if you grew up in an abusive or alcoholic family, all of these patterns were there. You know, you mm. kept secrets, you um, pretended, maybe even you lied, you got, you developed the same defenses of denial and um, protecting your father slash teacher. And so if that's the case, if that's your childhood background, see if you can ask yourself whether any of that is being repeated now in your community. Again, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Sufi, Buddhist, I don't care. Is your fam early family pattern that was in some way dysfunctional being repeated today? If that's the case, ask yourself, do I feel more free? Do I feel more obedient and subservient? Do I feel more authentic? Do I feel like I'm hiding the way I did with my family? And begin this kind of self-reflection and, um, you know, what I call inner work. So there's guidance in the book for how to do that, how to begin that process, how to take back the projections and how to reclaim what you've lost and still stay in the community. But it's very hard for people and it can be a painful process because, you know, the second chakra is about tribalism. Mm. So if you belong to a tribe, your kind of root need is belonging. Mm -hmm. And to risk giving up belonging in a, in a community of any denomination is very scary for people. And it's very scary, as you said, to be pushed out, to be exiled or excommunicated and to be threatened with, you know, you're going to have bad karma for lifetimes or your family's going to go to hell. Right. And those threats are used to coerce people to stay involved. So it's complicated and it's... Um, and it's not black and white. I'll give you another example of that. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a there was a group of Tibetan Buddhist teachers and survivors of abuse who went to the Dalai Lama with a document called Me Too Guru mm. about the abuses that were going on in his lineage's monasteries. And he dismissed it. And they said, why, why are you dismissing? And he said, well, I, I know all this. I've known it for decades. Oh, my. So what do we do with that information? We can't devalue the contribution that the Dalai Lama has brought to Tibet and the Tibetan people and the teachings of compassion that he's brought to the whole world. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have to recognize he has a blind spot. Because if he had brought that to light, he could have risked the collapse That's right. of the empire in the West. It might have crumbled, and he chose not to do that. So in all of these cases, people get invested in their self-interest. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're all bad. I mean, all of these communities are not cults. I'm not, this book is not a cult book in the sense of get out and go back to a conventional life. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> right? I'm saying that there can be great value um, in this teacher's transmission. Look at Muktananda. Yep. There, I mean, I could name so many people. Sure. Um, Rajneesh, Osho. These are brilliant people. Adi Da. They were all abusive. So how do we hold the shadow and the light. And I would add, what you said is exactly what I found. That, uh, there were certain teachers who were known to have committed egregious acts 
And yet when I interviewed their followers, even the ones who acknowledge the um, abuses said, yeah, but he, you know, my life was changed for the better. And you can't argue with that because it's, it's very true. And there are even women who are sexually molested yes. by the teacher who marry them and say, it's all good for me. Right. We don't know what the power dynamic is like in those marriages, right? We don't know what kind of shadow dynamic is there. But so that's why this is not a black and white issue. It's really nuanced and complex. And I was really trying to hold that in the right. It's a, you know, that old don't throw out the baby with the bathwater thing, which, you know, I have had countless conversations with people about, as have you. But And, and what do you advise people um, who need to be able to discern the difference between the babies and the bathwater? <laughs> How do they how do they go about it, and how do they find uh, companionship in that quest if their own community shuts it down? Well, in these stories, I found often a person, a survivor, had one friend, and like in one case in the book, that friend said to her, "That's abuse." And that woke her up to the reality mm. of what was happening. She just couldn't frame it that way herself. She couldn't see it that way because she would lose everything. And But when somebody else said it, she could actually take it in. And then she had a decision to make, right? Then yeah. what? You know, so for me, I had to leave the TM movement in order to individuate, I began to see that I had recreated family dynamics with that community, um, that I had sacrificed essential parts of myself to become a TM teacher, and that that was no longer tenable for me as I entered my 30s. Right. I, just, I wanted a different kind of life. It didn't mean that I was going to give up the spiritual search. Right. It didn't mean that I was going to stop finding practices or stop meditating. It didn't, for me, it didn't mean that. For some people, it does. Yeah. Some people are, have total loss of faith. Yeah. And the yeah. trauma, the betrayal is too great. So, you know, so for myself, it was very, it was a descent. It was a period of descent and um, isolation and great insight as well. Mm -hmm. And another door opened. Almost as soon as I left, another door opened and a writing mentor appeared and a new career appeared. And so I think it's important to say to people that we don't know what will unfold in your life when you let go. Whatever it is, it could be an abusive romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And when you let go, it feels like, you know, you're falling into the void. But something else will show up. So we don't know what's next. And that's that kind of comes down to trusting life, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Trusting the Dharma, the Tao, whatever we call it. Trusting that something else will carry you. Well, one more question, Connie, before we close. Um, you know, when when I wrote American Veda and I had to dig into all these uh, scandals that happened in the 60s and 70s, I thought, and, and people were like you and, and Ken Wilber and all the others were addressing these issues. And I thought, well, this is all for the good because the next generation of seekers and teachers will be so much better informed and it won't happen in, as much. The, the, the students will be less naive and the teachers you know, might be better behaved. But as you said, it, it, you know, it, it, it continues. So, 
we talked a lot about what people can do in the uh, face of uh, dysfunction and abuse. What more can we do to prevent it in the future? Um, you know, I've been getting a lot of emails from people about this book who um, have been really suffering with some kind of religious trauma or betrayal or spiritual disillusionment. And, um, and you know, it's happening, well, anyway, so the prevention part, so mostly I hear from people where it's already happening. So the prevention part seems to me to be about um, trainings for teachers who are open to um, the psychological line of development, the emotional line, the cognitive line of development. And I don't know if there are that many teachers who are interested in that. Um, if they come from Asia and they're told from birth that they're special and they you know, are entitled to you know, open monasteries and build an empire and sit on a throne, I'm not sure they're interested in developing these other lines. So it's but about- But they could still behave ethically and morally, even if they're on a throne. They could, but it's about, we're talking about prevention. Hmm. So how do we find the people, both the students and the teachers who, um, want to prevent this for themselves and for their beloveds? And I think that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to prevention. Mm. So from the point of view of the student, I know it a little bit better, which is that ask yourself where your blind spots are. Ask yourself what you're naive about. Ask yourself, who you think that person is that you're attributing all this glory to? Who is that person in the bathroom? <laughs> Who is that person as a human being? Do you see any red flags? It's like dating, Phil. <laughs> so when you're dating, you learn to check people out. What are the red flags? Do you see any? Do you see any paranoia? Do you see any avoidance of discussion of certain topics? Do you see any um, financial issues around amassing wealth? I just had someone tell me that his teacher first started with tithing and then wanted a part of his income and now once his parents died and the teacher wants his estate. Mm -hmm. So what do you notice about the teacher and the community's finances? How kosher is it? How shady is it? What's it being spent on? Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about that? And so it's Good. about trusting your own instinct and your intuition and asking yourself these hard questions. And being vigilant. We all need to be vigilant. Thank you, Connie. This is a very important stuff. Um, listeners, um, read Connie's new book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, and uh, the previous book, which I uh, hold in high regard and hoped we would have time to talk about today uh, because it's of relevance to some of us who are aging. The Inner Work of Age, um, which has a lot of wonderful material in it. And uh, Connie's website, connieswide.com. And while you're at it, uh, check out um, the um, group that um, the organization Connie alluded to that I'm on the board of, the Association for Spiritual Integrity. Just Google it and uh, see if... Uh, you have something to gain from from ASI or to contribute to it. Uh, we're trying to address some of these ethical issues. 
And thank oh, you for listening. Yeah, one con- quick thing. I want to put out an invitation to our listeners. I'm organizing support groups for people who want to do spiritual shadow work. And it involves, it's a book study group. You read the book and you do the practices together. And if you're interested in that, you can email me, ConnieZweig at gmail.com. Put spiritual shadow work in the subject line so I catch it. And give me your time zone. And I'll connect you with other people in your time zone. They're free, they're leaderless, and they're online. Thanks. Wonderful. Good. Thank you for that, Connie. So do that, Connie'sWag at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Email me with suggestions. Uh, Always open to hearing about new people I should interview. Uh, Check out my courses and books and so forth. And uh, subscribe to my mailing list. No more commercials. Thanks for being with us, Connie. Thanks to everybody out there. And we'll see you next time. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.